Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, so if we're casting for the movie of the Ukraine saga, who plays who in the movie? Obviously, Fiona Hill is being played by Tilda Swinton. No, Christian Zuck Thomas. What? No. Totally. Uh, I don't know. Margaret, who's playing Ulrich Brechtel? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, can we get through some primary characters? (laughs) No, go ahead, please. That's Margaret's favorite character in the whole. (laughs) I think it's just because she likes saying his name. I I think Ulrich Brechtel should play Ulrich Brechtel. Yeah, I like by, it. It's his own ghostly presence. Yes. I want Gordon Sunland to be played by an actor, but I'm afraid he's dead. The guy from Princess Bride who says, it's inconceevable. Yeah. Oh, Wallace. That's Wallace Shawn. Yes, yes. He's not dead, right? And I don't think okay, so. Good, he's but I want, I want Mike Pompeo to be played by somebody who is dead, which is Fred <laughs> Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> no, John Goodman plays Mike Pompeo. And Wilfred no, Brimley plays John Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, who's John Bolton? <laughs> Wilford Brimley. Oh, <laughs> no, actually, Tom Hanks is John Bolton. What? Nuance, Steph, let him show off his chops a little. Okay, okay. Tilda Swinton can play John Bolton. <laughs> Perfect. She could. She could handle a role. She She's got the chops. Perfect. She could play a role. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Lonely Amigo edition. Can we be the four amigos? <laughs> well, I was going to say, which one of us is the loneliest amigo? It's Tammy, because yeah, she's, she's off on off her own. Yes. Amigo-less. Yeah, we're amigo-less. <laughs> Hi, Tammy. <laughs> off there, on your own. We could, actually, Chevy Chase could play Gordon Sumlin in the movie. It's possible. If the three amigos, by the way, do not have a reunion sketch on Saturday Night Live this weekend, it is the biggest missed opportunity of the week. When Kurt Volker said, my understanding is the three amigos refers to, and then he started talking about John McCain, I thought for sure he was going to mention Steve Martin, and we have nothing in common, Mr. Volker. Ay, ay, ay. Um, we are here in the Jungle Studio with Susan Hennessy, Margaret Taylor, and Ben Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. The aforementioned Tammy is in the aforementioned Bahrain amigoing. On the podcast this week, what else? The House. The House of Representatives conducts marathon impeachment hearings with key witnesses, including one lonely amigo, Gordon Sumlin, and others. We're going to spend the first two segments unpacking a big, big week. Uh, and in the last thing we're going to talk about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Indicted. <laughs> He's having a week, too. Yeah. Well, and, and they're heading to new elections. It's it's a it's a. Big house fire. It really is. There's a lot going on. Uh, All right. Let's just dive right in. I want to start with yesterday's hearing with Gordon Sondland. (laughs) I think fair to say he seemed to me to be the biggest wild card witness. I kind of thought of him that way insofar as he had, you know, given testimony in closed door session. He had then come back and amended it after his memory was refreshed by hearing from other witnesses, which seems like a polite way of saying you're being allowed to amend your testimony so that you're not 
facing a charge of lying to Congress. And it wasn't clear whether he was going to come in and give, you know, testimony that would be flattering to the president, testimony that would be very harmful to the president. I mean, Margaret, I, I would like to start with this question with you kind of in the overall because you've actually read all of the deposition transcripts. So you have this. Bless you. You know, <laughs> like when he's delight. coming in there, like of all the things that Gordon Sunland has said, like, you know it. So I'm curious, A, what did you think? think he was going to present as or what did you what how, what kind of witness did you think he would be when he came in and what was your overall impression of the kind of witness they ended up being so i have never met gordon sunlin so anyone here met him damn okay i feel like i know him all right well you know and when you read someone's deposition transcript you know you just don't really always get a sense for who they are so what i was expecting was for him to sort of come in and not recall lots of things. And there were things that he said I don't recall. <laughs> what I did not expect was this sort of, you know, spunk he brought to the whole thing. And he it was clear that he had sort of just made this decision to come in and be like, you know what, everybody trying to throw me under the bus? I'm going to throw all of you under the bus because here's the deal and here's what was happening and the president was directing us and everybody knew everything. Tammy so, had a good line about this last night. She said it was, it's like it wasn't even throwing people under the bus. It was taking a monster truck and just driving over their bodies. I mean, it really was pretty extraordinary. I just didn't expect it. And it just seemed to me like he just didn't he just didn't care. And he just did it. Uh, and, and in some ways, it was quite, I thought, sort of endearing in kind of a, a, an odd way <laughs> to see it. Uh, so he had a lot more sort of spunk and personality. And I clearly made a decision to just come in and, you know, kind of not, not take the things that have been said about him. So the other thing, though, I, and I should say this is um, on the negative side, he's still pressing this idea that somehow he never put it all together, that Burisma and the Bidens was the same thing. And that's just not credible coming from anyone, frankly, involved in this, particularly not Gordon Sondland and and not Kurt Volker either. And so that is the one part where I just didn't feel like there was a lot of fidelity that yeah. came through. And he also seemed like he was enjoying the moment. Do you know what I mean? He was. It was almost there were times where I thought, he didn't seem like he was taking this seriously or that he thought it was a little bit of a joke. And he was just so kind of loose with everything. And it kind of spoke to, I almost thought like, I mean, frankly, it came across as a kind of an arrogance. I mean, that's how it read to me. I Maybe that's unfair. But I thought, you know, like you're in a really tough spot right now. And you seem to be sort of, maybe it's nervous laughter, but man, you think this is like, just like a friendly chat. And no, really, like you're this is this is what you're going to be remembered for for the rest of your life. Yeah, but I, I actually I think it is arrogance, but it's exactly the kind of testimony you would expect from somebody who doesn't have a real dog in the fight, who is independently wealthy and will go back to an independently wealthy life, who doesn't really care about what happens with Ukraine, who doesn't really care what happens with the United States of America. And he's right. Gordon Sondland's going to be totally fine, uh, notwithstanding the potential legal exposure he might have created for himself. No one's really going to prosecute him for anything. And 
And so why wouldn't this just be sort of a fun, interesting little experience for him? Uh, he paid a million dollars for this. He might as well get his money's worth. And so um, it's like well, his Westworld experience. <laughs> well, I agree that, you know, I, I agree with Margaret entirely. And, and I agree that he was remarkably candid in throwing particular people under the bus. And I think we should reserve some time to talk about one Michael Pompeo, who finds himself mm. quite firmly under the bus. Um, but I did think that the sort of willful ignorance about not understanding that Burisma was the same as Biden, the exact same game that Kurt Volker attempted to play, in a weird way was about attempting to spare the president. He really wasn't willing to take that final step and say, I was the person who had communications with the president. I was the person on the phone with him. This is what he said to me. And so while he makes clear this was the inference I drew, this is what I understood, I I do think that he was trying to be sort of cute and delicate and refusing to actually say, look, Burisima was the Biden's. Absolutely everyone involved in this situation knew it. And in a way, I thought Tim Morrison's uh, you know, testimony on the subject where people said, how did you figure out that Burisma and the Bidens were the same? He said, well, I was taking on a new job. Everybody was mentioning this company I'd never heard of. So I Googled it and Biden came up and I said, oh, it's about the Bidens. Like, any idiot could have put this together. And so this act in which these two obviously sort of um, reasonably intelligent people, Kurt Volker and Gordon Sunland, are just like astonishingly uncurious about it, like never occurred to them these might be linked. That seemed to me like sort of game playing um, and really about temp- uh, attempting to preserve their own reputations and a little bit protect the president while also taking everybody else down with them. Ben, you wrote a really interesting piece yesterday for Lawfare, and which, putting aside the atmospherics and the politics of this moment, you paid very close attention to the facts that Gordon Sondland presented. And you made the argument that he is accusing President Trump of bribery. Yeah, whether he knows he is or not. Right, um, which of course is mentioned in the impeachment clause as a cause for impeaching the president. So explain why you think he provided the evidence of a bribe. All right. So first of all, this is really more a story about Adam Schiff than it is a story about Gordon Sunland. Uh, Sunland is the witness, Adam Schiff. Uh, and for this purpose, I think it's actually extremely significant that Adam Schiff was for a number of years an assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. He is somebody who knows how to think about a criminal statute in relation to the witness in front of him. And I'm on the plane from Boston to Washington while this exchange is happening. And, you know, I realize that he is very specifically invoking the two significant elements of the federal bribery statute, which, you know, which is, is there a thing of value? And is it being exchanged in some direct sense for some kind of consideration in an act of policy or a, a you know an official act on the part of a public official and he is probing Gordon Sondland you know very explicitly about those two things and so you know if you look at the transcript of the of the relevant hearing which i of the relevant portion of the hearing which i excerpted and and published and you look at it next to the federal bribery statute, it's very clear that he is trying to set up He's trying to use Gordon Sondland's testimony to establish that the president, in fact, solicited a bribe. And so the actual language of the statute is whoever being a public official 
directly or indirectly, corruptly demands, seeks, receives, accepts, or agrees to receive or accept anything of value personally in return for being influenced in the performance of an official act. That is the the, the contours of the offense. And in this exchange, Schiff kind of methodically walks Sondland through, you know, were you promising some kind of thing of value uh, launching these investigations that were very personally important to the president? And were you doing that in exchange for or were you as the president conditioning uh, the receipt of those things on the performance of some official act, i.e. granting a White House meeting or uh, releasing this aid to Ukraine. And so, you know, I think it was very powerful. And, and, you know, for a congressional, a member of Congress, exceedingly skillfully done as a questioner, I mean, just it was a very, it was a very elegant line of questioning. And it was exceedingly powerful against the text of the Constitution, which explicitly includes bribery as a basis for impeachment. Margaret, I want to circle back to what Susan was mentioning about Pompeo and ask for your reaction to this because there was this moment where Sondland, when he – who admittedly says he has faulty memory or doesn't have great memory and you know, says, I don't take notes and you know I meet with world leaders all the time and maybe that's not such a big deal for me but maybe it is for you but not for me. But he did bring – messages with him, some of the ones that he was able to get access to. Uh, He faulted the State Department for not releasing more. Um, But he has this moment uh, where he reveals a message in which he relays that Mike Pompeo has given direction to the Amigos to meet with Rudy Giuliani and seems to be fully aware that Rudy Giuliani is doing his thing at at the behest of President Trump. And it really struck me that this is a moment where we've seen Pompeo sort of on the outside of the narrative kind of looking in and criticized by some as somebody who has not been defending career diplomats, did not come out with the statement of support for uh, Marie Yovanovitch, the ambassador in Kiev, when she was under attack by Rudy Giuliani. And now here he is pulled into the narrative as somebody who's telling people, go work with Rudy Giuliani. And I, that, that struck me as pushing him into the middle of the story in a way that he hasn't and, and implicating him in a way he hadn't been yet. I agree. I think it was a, sort of a pretty extraordinary kind of moment. I mean, throughout these proceedings, until then, you, you we've kind of had this sense of like, well, it's like Pompeo sort of missing, right? Like all this stuff is going on with Marie Ivanovich. She gets withdrawn. He never even calls her. He's just sort of a missing entity. And the moment you describe is when, yeah, Pompeo gets sort of pulled into this. And it's clear he sort of knows what's going on and is encouraging what is going on. So yeah, I thought it was a pretty, a pretty fascinating moment. Uh, and you have to you have to wonder what Mike Pompeo is thinking now about what this means for him. And I, I you know, obviously, he's been interested uh, in a potential Senate run in Kansas. Uh, I do wonder how this type of thing makes him think about maybe that's pretty appealing at this point to maybe think about going that route. One, you know, question I have is what are all of these documents? Where are all of these emails? Where is the paperwork? Uh, the State Department, it's clear from te- from people's testimony, has been gathering all sorts of documents. And 
I've been kind of asking around, what about those documents? When are they? (laughs) When are they coming? Are they being, you know, is someone, lawyers at the State Department going through them and then they're going to be delivered to Congress? Are they never going to be delivered to Congress? What's going on with those documents? Because I think it could reveal a fair amount about these exchanges. And so that's kind of a big question mark in my mind is what happens with all the documentary evidence that there clearly must be around all of these activities? Uh, I'm not unclear what Adam Schiff will do about it. Yeah, I I think that there is a deadline tomorrow, at least a preliminary deadline for the state, uh, for the State Department to produce some of the documents. So we might see them sooner rather than later um, in terms of obviously lots and lots of paper is going to exist around this. Um, You know, reporting already uh, suggests that Mike Pompeo is sort of looking for a soft exit from the State Department. He's trying to find a way out to sort of launch this this Senate bid for uh, for Senate in Kansas um, that he appears to still believe is viable. Um, I do think that the longer he stays in office and stays in the cabinet, you know, it's easier for someone like a national security advisor or the legal advisor to the National Security Council or these lower level officials to basically assert executive privilege or absolute immunity and just refuse to come before Congress. That's a very difficult proposition for a cabinet secretary to maintain over a long period of time, in part because they have to come before Congress as a matter of routine oversight, in part because they actually need Congress to play ball with them on on a day-to-day basis. And and Congress has lots of tools above and beyond sort of the annual uh, appropriations and authorizations process, obviously big sticks, in which to um, incentivize cabinet members to do things like produce testimony. And so um, I, I do think that now that we have testimony, and, and not just testimony, Gordon Sondland brought receipts, you know, with, uh, you know, emails in which he, uh, he he had Mike Pompeo copied on the email chain in which Mike Pompeo, you know, responds in the affirmative, which Mike Pompeo suggests whenever, whenever Sondland suggests having um, uh, Trump and Zelensky have this sort of pull aside at a meeting to sort of to discuss the these investigations, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo responds and says yes. And so, you know, now that there is, you know, really, really direct evidence of, of Pompeo's central involvement here and really knowledge about what was going on, um, I, I do think that's going to be a very difficult proposition for him, um, you know, to avoid at some point having to come before Congress under oath and at a minimum publicly refuse to answer questions, which, of course, for someone who's thinking about their political future and for someone who has generated a whole lot of tape pounding on the table about how absolutely appalling it would be for a secretary of state to refuse to comply with ordinary document requests for, uh, you know, from Congress and refuse to recognize, uh, you know, the co-equal branch of government. Namely, he was referring to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in the Benghazi hearings. I mean, that is uh, just made for campaign ads. And so, you know, if he's thinking about his own political future here and is really trying to avoid that moment, um, I wonder if we won't see an earlier exit even than we had suspected in terms of him leaving office. And just one last thing important to note about Sondland, we don't have to discuss it because I think he made it pretty clear, but started out by saying, yes, there was a quid pro quo. There was a quid pro quo uh, of a White House visit in exchange for these investigations, putting aside the fact that he's like, I don't know anything about the Bidens. But I I thought that was striking. Uh, And you saw the White House seizing on 
the other kind of half of this, which was that he said, well, I wasn't sure if a quid pro quo applied to military aid. So the White House line seems to be, we won't argue there was a quid pro quo on this one thing, but that's not that bad because I guess a White House meeting is not as significant than military aid. And that really clarified the message of that for the Democrats and really muddied it for the White House. Yeah, except for that then Sondland went on to say, I assumed, I inferred oh, that yeah. the military aid was a quid pro quo. Mick Mulvaney is someone who is in a position to have firsthand knowledge, and Mick Mulvaney said it was a quid pro quo in that sort of um, right. But, and, and they press played, conference. and they played that. But Congressman he, Castro played Mick Mulvaney's statement. He actually statement. said more than that, and you know his yeah his statement. You know, I did the, this was my presumption. Got a lot of derisive attention from the Republicans, but. The presumption was not based on nothing. The presumption was based on the fact that he (laughs) met personally with the president and the president, when he asked, do you want to do this meeting? Would you do this meeting? The president said, go talk to Rudy. And when he talked to Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani told him what the conditions were. That's what the presumption was based on. It's a pretty direct chain. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on now to the next slate of witnesses that were up today. Fiona Hill, who was the top Russia expert and official on the National Security Council, uh, and then David Holmes, who is the senior political officer at the embassy in Kiev. Actually, Sunland is a good place to pick up with Holmes. So let's start there. Holmes is sort of this character that kind of got added in like, you know, act three of the play, like, ooh, where did he come from, (laughs) right? (laughs) Enter stage right political officer uh, to recount a most unusual lunch that he had with Gordon Sondland in Kiev the day after Trump's phone call with Zelensky. And just to remind people, this is the the lunch where it's the loves your ass lunch. (laughs) It's the loves your ass. He loves your ass. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, for the rest of this guy's life, he's going to be the guy loves who, your ass. who overheard the president say somebody saying to the president, he loves your ass. So at this lunch, uh, you can picture it. You know, Gordon Sunlit is sitting there. Let's just emphasize, by the way, this is a restaurant in the middle of a city crawling with Russian intelligence officers, <laughs> and he is on an unsecured phone talking to the President of the United States in the middle of a restaurant. About his ass. <laughs> <laughs> and as Holmes describes it, Sunlin is on the phone and says, Gordon Sunlin holding for the president. And I like to imagine that Sunlin looks at the lunchmates and goes, <laughs> and <laughs> winks. Uh, but so it's like, okay, so Holmes clearly knows he's on the phone with the president, right? That's been established. Uh, and then when he does get through to the president, uh, Trump is yelling so loudly that as Holmes tells it, he has to pick up his phone and he sort of pulls it away from his ear and he winces. And that's how Holmes is then able to overhear the conversation uh, in which the president is talking about investigations and are they going to do it? And uh, Sunland says, uh, yes, that they are. Uh, and they love your ass, meaning Zelensky will do anything for you. Um, this is after a brief moment where it seems like he has to remind the president that he's in Kiev, which is, in fact, in Ukraine. So, uh, <laughs> but, so there's a little bit of comedy in this exchange. But there's a very important factual exchange, which is here you are a day after the conversation between Zelensky and Trump. And the president is calling and talking to his man on the ground in Ukraine, running Ukraine policy, and says, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? (laughs) Um, You know, I think you could tell to some degree 
Susan, how much Republicans felt that this was a pretty devastating fact witnessed by the degree which they were attacking Holmes and making it seem like he'd been hiding this call. There was an exchange with Jim Jordan uh, where you know Jordan made it sound as if Holmes had just kind of flown and then dropped this in at the last minute in coordination with the Democrats and he had to explain – why it was that you know he thought that he had transmitted the information about this call to staff in the embassy, and there appears to have been maybe some misunderstanding that they didn't quite understand what Holmes had said. But the point is, is that now he's come here and he's really, it seems, established a firsthand witness account to the president and Sunland having a conversation about investigations. Yes, yeah, so I think this is one area in which there's a little bit of a risk of losing the thread or forgetting where this all began or thinking that what we're in search of is a is a link to the president directly and that this is here it is here's the link to the president of the United States's actual involvement um the link to the president's of the United States's actual involvement is the call memorandum that the White House itself released in which the president brought this up on the phone with Zelensky. Um, and so we have that. We have that confirmed, confirmed by the White House really in, in the most black and white possible terms. And so I think it's important to sort of start and anchor with that point. That said, I think sort of this week of hearings has really been about eliminating any possible Republican defenses kind of one by one. And this moment was to the extent the Republicans were still trying to pretend as though it wasn't really clear what was going on in this call transcript and as though this large group of people were freelancing or somehow misunderstood what the president wanted, that Trump himself really was not looking to uh, extract political favors or political investigations. Um, You know, this is the direct link. This is somebody hearing the president mention investigations specifically. Um, and so while it's an important piece of evidence, it, it's certainly a piece of evidence that makes it even harder for the Republicans to continue to mount what is already a quite untenable defense. Um, it, it also is, is confirm, additional confirmation of what is abundantly clear. And that's that the president of the United States was driving this from the very beginning, that nobody else was really, that with the exception of Rudy Giuliani. Nobody else in the administration was trying to walk him down this path. They were all trying to get him to do something else. They were all uh, trying to sort of channel these impulses into productive U.S.-Ukraine relations. And so, you know, again, this is just yet another sort of piece of evidence on the table that just makes it indisputable that this was driven by the president of the United States and that what he wanted was investigations into political opponents and that he was withholding both military aid and these White House meetings uh, in exchange for that. And so uh, it's not surprising the Republicans are are really trying to go all in on attacking this. Um, That said, Holmes was a very clear and credible witness today. And and I don't think they advanced their cause much in suggesting somehow he was making this up or or had hidden it. And just to footstomp on that a little bit, I mean, the thing that struck me about the Fiona Hill's testimony today um, and also Holmes (coughs) was, you know, Republicans would ask them questions which they expected sort of one-word answers or for the witness to be a little bit, you know, unsure. But instead, what they got from both of these witnesses were were detailed, you know, firm, clear 
answers, long answers. And I think it really put Republicans on their heels because, you know, Holmes was up there saying he remembered, you know, where everyone was sitting at the table, at the lunch. He remembered that they ordered wine. He remembered that he was sitting close enough to someone to share an appetizer. Like all of these details that if you're sort of just making something up, you don't make up all these details. And so their attempts to sort of poke holes in him just didn't work because he had just all of this the backstory, he had all of the sort of explanation for why he understood the conversation in the way that he did. Fiona Hill, same thing. You know, she just has this incredible wealth of knowledge. And in particular, the Republican counsel questioner, um, Castor, would sort of ask her some questions expecting, or maybe he thought he knew what the answer was. And she would just sort of launch into a long explanation in a very cogent um, and clear way and giving you know, the whoever's watching these hearings, just a much fuller understanding of what was going on. And all of it was really damning for the president. And he yeah, even tried to I, cut her off at some points. <laughs> He's he like, yeah, yeah, that's enough. That's enough. She's like, oh, no, no. And she kept going. Yeah, yeah. Look, but I think one thing we're seeing here is is a pretty clear skill differential. And so I, I'm seeing a lot of people sort of on Twitter talking about, you know, Steve Castor is a bad lawyer. You know, they should have gotten a good lawyer. Um, I don't think it's a question of a good or bad lawyer. There's this notion that either you're a good lawyer and you can do all these things or you're a bad lawyer and you're an idiot and you can't do it. Questioning witnesses in this sort of uh, a setting is a skill. It's a skill that needs to be developed. It's a very, very particular skill set. There's a reason why Dan Goldman is very good at this. There's a reason why Adam Schiff is very good at this. It's because they've had a lot of practice and they know how to control a witness, how to develop a narrative, how to ask a question designed to get a specific answer from a witness. When the witness doesn't give you the answer you're expecting, going back, cleaning it up, laying it down, making sure they give you exactly what you want. And so, you you know, I, I don't have much um, sympathy for any of the Republicans, and I have very um, much less sympathy than I did for Steve Castor earlier this week after watching him sort of attempt to launch this um, this really gross smear of Alexander Vindman sort of suggesting that what was clear, clearly a joke offer for him to become the Ukrainian defense minister was somehow um, a reason to actually genuinely question his loyalty. I think that was a, an incredibly ugly moment. Um, but, but I think we're seeing two things. One is just uh, the Republicans being really dramatically outmatched on, on a scale level. And keep in mind, both Castor and Jim Jordan were specifically brought to the committee to accomplish this task. This is not them just working with, with what they had on the committee. They actually brought people over to do this. And they're working with really, really damaging, devastating facts. Yeah, I don't think it is just about a skill differential. I think, you know, Fiona Hill and actually Gordon Sondland was a very skilled witness as well in a, in a weird, goofy kind of way. But these are people who, and and certainly, you know, the witnesses last week, Kent and 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 Yovanovitch and and Taylor, these are people who will hold up really well under questioning. And one reason is that they're telling the truth, and it's relatively easy to hold up under under even good questioning. And I agree with Susan that the questioning isn't especially skilled on uh, on the Republican side. It's relatively easy to hold up under even good questioning if you happen to remember stuff and you're recounting what you remember accurately. And, and that's not to say that there's no skill to being a witness, but these are very 
good witnesses and they're people who have a powerful memory of a very upsetting set of events and they are recounting that memory and shaking them off of it. You know, I, I even tweeted this morning before Fiona started testifying that a, a little warning to Republicans who were inclined to sort of treat her patronizingly or trying to generate a, a kind of good C-SPAN moment that, you know, she's smarter than you and she's going to make she's going to embarrass you. And that has kind of happened over and over again. And and I just tweeted while we were talking, retweeted it with a, you know, don't say I didn't warn you. Like, this is a situation where they're outmatched. And yes, there's a skills element of that, but there's also a witness quality element and there's also a fact element. Well, and this speaks, I think, into kind of an information asymmetry that's at play here as well, which is that Fiona Hill doesn't just come to this as a witness of events that she saw in the White House. She comes to this as somebody who had access to copious amounts of intelligence about Russia's interference, about what was going on in Ukraine, and frankly to this question that has come up again and again, largely through the questioning of Devin Nunes about so you know alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. And if you're turning, tuning in and hearing the name Alexandra Chalupa a lot, right, which probably strikes most people as what are you talking about? Is that that is you know this theory? I hesitate to even call it a theory that the real culprit of interference in the 2016 campaign was Ukraine. And I thought that one of the things that that Fiona Hill clearly wanted to do, and it very much got under Devin Nunes' skin, was deliver a very public and forceful message directed at members of the committee that this theory is BS. <laughs> and I'm going to just read really quickly you know, what she had to say about it. Based on questions and statements I have heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps some Somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. Key part. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. That is not Fiona Hill opining. That is the former NSC director for Russia making a statement under oath about what is behind that claim. And I think she clearly wanted that to land with some authority uh, and then went on to say that when members of Congress are up here propagating this theory for which there is no evidence, let's be very clear, you're doing what Russia wants. You're helping them out. Uh, and, and I thought that was just such a powerful moment for you know a televised hearing. And it, it didn't really resonate with Republicans. Devin Nunes' response to that was to have printed out a copy of the Republican Majority Report's uh, investigation of the Russian election interference and have it handed to her while she was, you know, sitting in the audience. And you could kind of see her thinking like, you're missing the point. Yeah. I mean, look, in order for a line like that to land, you have to be capable of feeling shame. And that's a capacity that Devin Nunes lost at some point relatively early along the way. And, you know, if shame were capable of restraining behavior behavior would have been restrained a long time ago. But I totally agree with you that if there is a moment that should have induced a kind of sucking in your gut and like, Jesus, what are we doing? Uh, this would have been one of them. And just as a coda to this, the White House, after Fiona Hill testified, 
put out a statement that said, Schiff and congressional Democrats are playing right into Russia's hands. Fiona Hill warned today that it is Russia's goal to delegitimize the president of the United States, which I retweeted by saying this is the opposite of what Hill was saying and what she was warning lawmakers about. Also, she was talking about delegitimizing the presidency of the United States, a rather important distinction from the president personally. I do think, though, Fiona Hill, and as you all have said, I think she did a real service for these proceedings because she was really able to kind of step back and start to put things into the broader perspective of why this impeachment inquiry, at least for me, why it's important to do. Because I think there's a little bit of sort of noise out there, but this is, we're talking about meetings and phone calls and why is why are we talking about meetings and phone calls and all this stuff? And I'm not really sure why this is important. So I feel like to you know today she, with her testimony, she brought us all out again about why it's really important to be doing this and figuring out what happened and really understanding what's going on here because it's important for the future of our country. You know, she really was kind of making that point, and I think that is a point that people who you know favor impeachment, the Democrats, are going to need to be making. Over and over and over again, because, you know, Americans just out there living their lives, you know, they don't think about Ukraine every day. They don't think about what ambassadors do. But it's super important for people to understand why this is important uh, in the context of national security. I think she did a good job on that. So Donald Trump's not the only world leader having a big week. Yeah. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu indicted on charges of bribery, fraud, Breach of trust. That is the headline from the Washington Post, datelined out of Jerusalem this afternoon. Ben, we've talked a lot on the podcast about Bibi Netanyahu's legal troubles, but it seems like it's this has come to a big moment. What is the indictment about? And re- refresh our memory how we got here. Right. So these are a number of different cases. It is in no sense a surprise that that Bibi has been indicted. Uh, the question in the Israeli political and legal system has always been not really whether he would be indicted, but whether he would merely be indicted for breach of trust, which is a comparatively low-level offense and would have been, I think, seen as a victory for him, or whether he would also be indicted for bribery and sort of more higher-level crimes. The issues are pretty varied. Uh, They range from uh, and, I, and I have not read this, the indictment, which as far as I know is not in English yet, but they range from, you know, sort of fraud in a telecommunications contracting situation to a supposed bribery situation with the head of a newspaper in which he basically uh, offered to stop uh, advantaging a different newspaper in exchange for more favorable coverage. And, uh, you know, there's a, the Netanyahu's like to live large. Uh, he's into the finer things in life, uh, cigars and uh, ice cream. pink champagne. Was there an ice cream thing There may have been while? some ice cream involved. And, uh, you know, it is stuff that is not of in any sense of geopolitical importance, but is uh, the kind of garden variety graft in which, frankly, other prominent Israeli politicians uh, have uh, been ensnared in two, including Netanyahu's predecessor, Ehud Olmert, who was in prison for a while on on uh, grafty kind of stuff as well. And uh, look, the major significance of this uh, is that Netanyahu has been in power for a long time. 
unlike the president of the United States, the prime minister of Israel is in fact amenable to criminal process. And his own attorney general, his appointed attorney general, whom he has very little ability to control, his own police force, which, you know, he is a national police force, uh, did this investigation while he was prime minister, indicted him while he was prime minister. Whether he can hold his coalition together, the Israel is kind of between governments right now and nobody is currently able to put together a government. They've had two elections in an attempt to form a government. He's kind of – they've both been kind of stalemates in which nobody has been able to produce a government. And so you know, the big question is does this weaken him sufficiently that some coalition now forms around him? Uh, some of his own party maybe abandon him. Or can he kind of hold that uh, those those fifty five right wing seats, right wing and religious seats that have pledged themselves to him, and head into elections and still kind of prevail uh, even with this happening? I do think it is striking that his reaction to this whole investigation is remarkably Trumpian. I mean, he tweeted today that this was an attempted coup and that the investigators need to be investigated. And I mean, you can just cut and paste BB into Trump tweets and Trump into BB tweets, and it is remarkably similar. I mean, and one of the interesting things will be kind of a real-time, real-world experiment on the pros and cons of the U.S. system versus the Israeli system. And, you know, to the extent that having a president who oversees the Justice Department and uh, we do not formally have that law enforcement independence, to the extent that that's uh, helped create sort of a, a strong and flexible and politically accountable presidency, um, are are we seeing that sort of the the other side of that now and sort of the inability to hold a president accountable in situations in which political polarization and partisanship have created conditions in which Congress just isn't willing to fulfill sort of the obligations of its branch on a bipartisan basis, you know, versus this other system that is offering a, um, a quite interesting example of uh, the ability to hold you know, political leaders accountable for criminal wrongdoing. Um, and so it's not going to be good for either country to go through this. But um, it like from a, a purely empirical, you know, sort of constitutional uh, legal theory and, and political science standpoint, I, I do think it's going to be interesting to watch it play out in real time and see if this basically identical strategy by Trump and Bibi, you know, pay off in both places or or if they fail to work in one and work in the other. And, and what does that mean? And ben, isn't it also the case that if Netanyahu had been able to form a government, you know, back in May, that wasn't he pushing a law that would have shielded him fr exactly from this indictment? So it's almost like we we almost you know, almost didn't get there. Um, it really was the outcome of the, the election in May that has sort of and the inability to pass that law that has sort of led to this moment in some respects. That's exactly right. So when Netanyahu tried to put together a coalition in May and failed, one of the major goals that he had for that coalition was the passing of an immunity law modeled on the U.S. presidency to immunize the prime minister while he's in office. And this he was doing this while he's under an investigation 
And one of the reasons that he was unable to put together a government, not the principal reason, but one of the reasons was anxiety about the immunity law. He then did less well in the second round of elections than he did in the first, and the immunity deal was kind of off the table in, in response. And so in that sense, Israeli democracy has performed, uh, I think, quite admirably in its chaotic way. You know, A prime minister tried to pass a law to shield himself from criminal process, a popular prime minister, and the system stopped short of that and held off and allowed the indictment of that prime minister. And that's actually just as a purely democratic accomplishment, that's pretty substantial. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, why don't you go first? My object lesson is shit and an ass. And they both show up in the same conversation about which, uh, which uh, Gordon Sondland had with uh, Mr. Holmes and the president, and Holmes testifies about it today. He is willing to say the president loves your ass. He is not willing to say he doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. And so my question, if I were a member of Congress and I had five minutes to ask Mr. talk to Mr. Holmes, I'd say to him, you know, political counselor Holmes, why are you comfortable saying ass in front of the Congress of the United States on national television, but you're too prudish to say the word shit. And I think this is really the takeaway that we should all be focused on. I thought it was endearing. Gotta have standards, man. <laughs> all right. Margaret, what's your object? So I actually have 460 of them. <laughs> Are these pages? No, they're actually pies. Oh. Yeah. Um, and so my object lesson, you know, we're heading into the Thanksgiving season. So I just want to remind everyone we all have much to give thanks for. Um, I personally will be spending the weekend uh, with 60 other volunteers uh, baking 460 pies for families in need in the D.C. area. We are doing half pumpkin and half apple. I'm very excited. I spent a few weeks testing recipes, so they will be very delicious. Uh, so, yeah, that's my sort of message for uh, going into the Thanksgiving uh, week. Fantastic. Fantastic. Susan, your object. Well, to follow up on Margaret's um, more heartwarming uh, object lesson, um, I have a less heartwarming object lesson. Um, so my object lesson is a series of lawsuits, um, a more recent lawsuit by a NSC staffer, a former congressional staffer named Kash Patel, uh, against the, the uh, website Politico and a, and a reporter, Natasha Bertrand, for um, reporting what appear to be true and accurate facts about uh, Mr. Patel. Uh, Mr. Patel is uh, using the same attorney. Uh, as his former boss, Devin Nunes, who is also engaged in a series of lawsuits against both private individual citizens, Twitter, uh, and also uh, reporters and journalistic outlets that have reported, again, true but unfavorable information about him. Um, I'm really surprised that uh, the Nunes lawsuits have drawn a lot of attention because he's suing a fake cow on Twitter, and it's all really funny, and it sort of adds to how absurd and ridiculous Devin Nunes is. Um, and it is absurd and ridiculous, but it's also really scary and really dangerous um, and really upsetting that we have not seen bipartisan condemnation, um, that we aren't even really seeing lawmakers, either Democrats or Republicans, being asked about this, about their colleagues and the former staff of their colleagues using uh, lawsuits designed to chill free speech and public participation, an outright and direct attack on the First Amendment and free speech in the media. Um, this is 
is really, really corrosive stuff. It shouldn't be controversial. It should be easy for the GOP to condemn. Um, and so I, I just offer these as a note of caution um, that seeing this move from uh, – that it's alarming enough to see it from a member of Congress to now see it move to uh, current staff of the White House. Um, this is a really alarming development. People need to pay attention to it. People need to be asking uh, how these individuals are in a position to bankroll these lawsuits, which can be quite expensive. So this really is just a, a warning that the people should be focused on this and that um, it's not just a funny headline about Devin Nunes and fake cows on Twitter. It really is the ability to have a, a truly free, fair and open media that can is allowed to rigorously report um, and not fear retaliation for doing so. All right. Uh, mine is on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, podcast fans know I like to recommend to them uh, various films and TV shows I'm watching. So I'm watching The Mandalorian. Are you guys watching this? No. I am not. On Disney Plus. Do you know what this is? I've, no. heard, I've seen tweets about it. So The Mandalorian. Is this the Baby Yoda Chicken one? knows what it is. Yes. Okay. I've seen pictures. I love it. That's what it's becoming known as. So you know Boba Fett, the character. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's kind of a Mandalorian. He's kind of not. Right? Back me up. He's sort of as he's sort of. Like. Anyway, the character who looks like Boba Fett. Well, now we're in a different part of the Star Wars universe where the Empire has fallen. And it's like the Wild West. So lots of themes about law and order, vigilante justice, bounty hunting. Our protagonist is a bounty hunter. Lots of themes that uh, I think will resonate with people for the, sh- for the show. But to your point, Susan, it has featured this tiny little baby that looks like a baby Yoda. Well, it looks kind of like a mogwai from the Gremlins films. <laughs> and he's just so damn cute. He is very cute. He is adorable. And it spawned easily one of my favorite memes of recent memory, <clears throat> which somebody did playing on another re- meme, which is a picture of old Yoda from the original saying his famous line, do or do not, there is no try. And then a picture of baby Yoda saying, okay, boomer. And then Yoda <laughs> saying, listen here, you little shit. <laughs> Look at this. A meme of our time. The internet just gives and gives. And it's like Yoda's eyes are big and he's looking at it. Tell me that this was just, this was a gift. Even if it were not coming in the middle of a very trying and exhausting week, I would be down with this anytime. I'm here for Baby Yoda. I'm here for Boomer memes. I'm here for The Mandalorian. You should be too. And I'm here for this podcast, which is sadly coming to an end. And won't be here next week. That's right. As a housekeeping note, you will not see us next week. I mean, we are we are playing with the emotions of our listeners. I apologize. We've gone from Wednesdays to Thursdays. We won't be here next week, but try and enjoy some time with your friends, with your family. Give thanks. Give thanks for this podcast, which is, of course, a production of Lawfare. And tell all your family and friends around the Thanksgiving dinner table that you can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy Rational Security Baby Yodas at Mandalorian Rational Security Store. Dot TV. Don't sue us, Dot Walt Mill. Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather be sued by Walt Disney Company or Devin Nunes? Take your pick. You can only choose one. You can. Walt Disney has better lawyers than Devin Nunes. Yeah, I'd, I'd pick Nunes. <laughs> Airplane's lawyer might sue you now. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It helps us out. Our audio engineer this week is Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Gordon Sunland, who has recorded his own Mexican folk song. Have you heard about this? Yeah. It's called Les Gusta Tu Culo. Oh. What? They love your ass. (gasps) Nice. Nice. I just wanted to work in some Spanish. Very nice. Uh, it's good. You're pretty good it's at good. that. 
I try. I try. I don't know, Sofia. Yeah, I love your ass. Me gusta mi culo. Sure. <laughs> Sophia Yan is not joining this band. She's not joining any bands. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Margaret Taylor, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Hasta luego. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.